Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> what to do when you've been hurt by the church or by faith or by religion or by all sorts of stuff there. Um, that's a major theme I see in my office a lot um, when people have been wounded in lots of ways, either trauma or, or family or relationally. Um, oftentimes they, they have a component which is the church has hurt them in some way as, as well, but when the church hurts you, it feels extra personal. It feels extra raw for some reason. And so I like to address the topics which I hear frequently because um, if I'm hearing them from one or two clients, chances are I hear them from a lot of clients, and then people who aren't in my office oftentimes have the same questions. We have friends that we'll have dinner with and, and uh, coffee with, and at times we can express, again, frustration or questions or confusion and all those things about the church. So um, we're going to spend some time tonight kind of just going over some brief um, uh, concepts of what that looks like relationally, but then we're going to bring up some people who are much smarter than I, and we're going to do some more tag teaming tonight with um, Ben Thomas, who you already saw here, and then um, Bill is going to be with us, Bill Clem. So you guys can save up your really good questions for them. It's really nice having other people up here because I can just point to someone else and go, what do you think? And their answers typically are going to be better. But before we do that, it's always, always, always better just to start off with something that is, you know, memorable. Jen up there, the sound's going to be a little, okay, you got it. Here we go. Let's see. Crank it up. Got to crank it up. There we go. Today's reading comes from the book of Proverbs. If I may digress for a moment from my prepared message, I mean it when I say to you, you guys, sometimes you're bad. Don't be jerks. You're supposed to be good. I'm in my office every day, and somebody comes in, and they're like, hey, whoops. I'm like, don't. Dan, what is your deal? If anybody doesn't know, Dan is the worst. I took a vow to not say who was the worst, but it's Dan. You guys are making me look bad in front of God. What's that? Oh, look, it's Jesus. And he said, stop it. <laughs> the word of the Lord. <laughs> Holy smokes. I don't know if that's funny because it's uh, satirical or if it's familiar. It's, it's scary sometimes. Man, Dan is the worst. Gosh, I took a vow not to say anything, but it's Dan. <sighs> you could ask the pastors who come up here if they ever feel like that. Okay, I'm just a counselor. I can't answer that question. But you can ask Ben or Bill that all day long and see what they say. I, I'm going to throw them under the bus tonight. Um, the topic for tonight, again... Um, 
what to do when you've been hurt by the church is actually fairly uh, poignant and personal, even for me. Uh, quick kind of background, I, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a Christian home. I attended Christian schools. Um, uh, I have been well-versed in what good Christian kids are supposed to do, and I, and I played that role well. And good Christian kids go to church and say their prayers and don't steal and don't swear and don't look at certain things and always help little ladies across the street. That's, that's what good Christian kids do. And my faith was both real and important and valuable to me, but I still have questions. I, I don't have all the answers. There's things I struggle with and wrestle with, and there's things that my wife struggles with and wrestles with, and um, we don't know how to quite approach that. And there was a season probably when our kids were um, fifth grade-ish, is that somewhere in there? Um, fifth grade, so that would have been 10, 15 years ago or so, 12 years ago, where my wife and I had experienced so many hurts from the church that we actually stopped attending. We stopped attending for three years. For a good Christian kid, that was um, close to damnable. It was scary. Um, because everything that I would judge my faith upon, external behaviors, um, uh, what other people would see and think, was now being challenged. But the, the hurts that my wife had experienced, the hurts that I had experienced, came to a head when we were attending a church. And um, one of the families in our Sunday school group, the, the group that we attended, they were um, foster parents. And they had several foster kids in their, um, in their care. And my wife and I were out shopping. And... Um, my wife noticed one of these uh, foster kids, a little girl, um, with this family out in Target or wherever it was, and she noticed the little girl didn't look healthy. The little girl actually didn't look um, healthy or thriving or something else like that. And my wife, that little radar she has, which I can't describe, but it, that little thing of something's not right was going off in her head, and she had said something about it, but, um, you know, you just don't go up to someone and say, what's going on? It came to a head two weeks later that um, this little girl actually was being abused by the mom in this family. And that rattled my wife to the core. And that announcement came um, in the Sunday school class, and then that was the last word we heard about it. There was no conversation. There was no further information. There was no processing. There was, no there was nothing else about that. And it left my wife with so many questions and such a desire to, to work through her feelings in community within the church, but it didn't feel safe for her to do that. And that was kind of the tipping point for her to say, if churches, the place that we're supposed to care for people, the place that we're supposed to love people unconditionally, and there's people harming other people in the church and people who are struggling, but we can't talk about it, why am I here? What's the point? Why are we going? And so um, she stepped away, we stepped away together, and we're going, what does it look like to actually love people good? Because if we're not finding it in the church, where do we find it? And we were questioning, and we were struggling. And 
it wasn't a case of church shopping. We're just going to go try to find a different church, a different congregation or group of people. It was, we don't know if there's any church that does this well. We're not, we're not sure of, of any body of, of human beings under the church name, under the name of God, that is loving people well. Because her hurts, her wounds, her, her fears, and my frustration um, weren't getting satisfied. And when you can't find that at a church, the question is, where do you turn? Typically, I think what happens the most is we end up isolating because if we can't go to a community. It's like, well, I'm going to have to figure this out on my own. But when you're isolated, you can't heal when those wounds are actually based in community. Does that make sense? The kind of the catch-22 you're stuck in? Um, when you don't trust, that thing back last week about trust gets wounded the most because of trauma and because of distress, you can't trust other people you're now left in a, in a, in a, in a conundrum, in a, in a wrestling place. And so what do you do? So in preparation for this conversation tonight, um, I sat down with my wife for a while. And it's like, well, let's walk us through. How did we go through this process? What was even more ironic is um, I was on staff at the church. This isn't just the church that we attended. I was a staff member at the church. And... Again, I have actually really high regard for this church. This church is still important to me, so I'm not bad-mouthing the church. I'm, bad, um, I'm examining our experience in it. But when we left the church, the only, you know the only phone call we got when we left the church? It was about eight weeks later. We hadn't attended. We hadn't seen anybody. We hadn't shown up for eight weeks, and we got a phone call from someone saying, by the way, you have snacks next week in Sunday school. And... Again, it made us scratch our head at that point going, huh, what's happened to community? What's happened to connection? What's, are we missed? Are, are people reaching out? Are people, do they even miss us? Do they even know we're gone? This is why, by the way, little time out here, this is why it's so important and it actually makes my heart really excited when you guys take extra time introducing yourself at the beginning of this thing. Get known, be found, learn someone's name so that when they're not here, it's like, huh, I wonder where Mike is. Where'd Steve go? Where's Betsy? When you are known, that takes both you reaching out and putting your hand out saying, my name is Paul, what's yours? And, and seeking out the people who might not be putting their hand out first. Does that make sense? Community is super important. So I love it. I love it when I watch you guys shaking hands and traveling across the auditorium here to say hi to people and taking extra time to talk. That, that is good. That is beautiful. And we missed that somehow in our church experience. Now, we will take some responsibility in that. Again, it's always a two-sided street. There's always a component that we play in that, but there's also a component that community plays in that. So the church can hurt us. Does that make sense? Is that tracking? And it... And so in the conversation with my wife, we're going, well, what actually brought us back? How in the world did we get back into um, community at a church again? Because we now are part of a, a, a very good church that we enjoy and we connect with people and all those things are, are present. But how did we get there? Because if we don't know how we got there, then it's difficult to take other people through that process as well. So what tended to help was um, what we call borrowed hope. For three years, for three years, my wife and I discussed 
Why aren't we going to church right now? What's going on? What needs do we have that need to get filled? And between my wife and I, um, her hurts were a little bit deeper than mine. Mine were legitimate, mine were real, mine were true, um, but hers were a little bit more acute. And so as she continued to kind of talk about the hopelessness, kind of a theme in this entire series that we're doing, when hopelessness is present of, I'm not sure we're going to find anywhere, she actually borrowed some of my hope because I, I actually trusted that, again, we heal, we get better, we don't stay stuck. And, and so it was her words to me this week when we talked about it, when she says, I actually borrowed some of your hope. You're the one who kept me from getting kind of entrenched and walking away completely in this. And so you have to, you have to connect to another human being who is going to say, I'm willing to take some time and I'm willing to let you um, work through this. Well, someone who's saying, as long as it takes, I'm going to continue to wrestle this out with you. So what are the other questions? What's your hurts? What's your concerns? Being heard, being understood, being listened to. That is one of the key ingredients, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit more throughout the night, but when you can actually sit with someone and say, you don't have to, you don't have to be out of this place of questioning right now. You can still be wondering, you can still be wrestling, you can still be questioning. When you can do that and offer that to someone, well, let me ask a question. Has anyone ever had that experience where you've had someone come alongside you and they are going, as long as it takes, I, I am willing to walk with you through this? What, what does that do for you? How does it feel? I'm sorry? Comforting. Yeah. Gives you hope. That borrowed hope again. Yeah. Feels foreign. Like strange. Yeah. Which is a shame. Disappointing. That. I'm trying to think through scripture. How oftentimes Christ showed up and said, hurry up. I, I, I can't come up. Can you come? I can't come up with one. Ben, you. Feels rare. foreign, rare, but it's comforting and hopeful. Guys, I want to change this. I want to, uh, you guys, let's, let's, let's change that. Let's not make it rare. Why do we hurry up, people? Eh, let's ask a better question. Why do we hurry ourselves up? How can we have a hard time allowing ourselves to sit in that pain? <laughs> Can you put more words to that? That's a very descriptive term. <laughs> Thorough. It sucks. It's uncomfortable. You don't want to be there. You try to force yourself to move on. But you just want to get out of the pain. You're, you're probably the only one who feels that, by the way. Nobody else feels that at all. Okay, so. Yeah. Thanks. I'll, I'll get back to you in just a second. There's someone over here? Real loud again, I'm sorry. Trying to control it. Because again, our way of going through it's probably the best way. 
You hear the themes from the, kind of the weeks prior to see how this kind of builds on top of everything here? When we try to be in control, when we try to orchestrate our lives according to our truth, we actually rush through pain instead of as long as it takes. Yeah? I think there's also this idea that there's some place to get to. Yes. Oh, man, that's superb. Keep talking. Yeah, because happiness is just six steps away, and our job is to figure out what those six steps are so that we're in God's will, and then we can do these six things, get the right job, marry the right person, uh, live in the right place, make the right amount of money, and then we can be happy. What a, what a difficult way to move through life versus being able to sit in it at the moment. Yes, ma'am. Yes, we got to get to heaven now instead of noticing that the kingdom is here at the moment. Yeah, that's a new concept. Huh, there was one other, where, where, where did I see? Yes, sir. As loud as you can. Nope. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 How to be in that pain with someone again? Christ didn't do that in his last days on earth. Very intentional about timing. Very patient. Very patient. It'd be great if there was a four-week class taught in the mornings by someone on how to walk with people through pain. That should be a good idea. I don't know. Ben, maybe you can come up with that. But um, it truly is, I use the phrase, sacred space. When you can sit with someone who is asking and struggling and questioning around big issues, around deeply personal, deeply um, held beliefs, and you're willing to say, I'll sit with you in that moment. There's no greater space that you can sit with someone. It is both uncomfortable as you, the helper, been there a lot because there's this urges inside you that says, I want to fix you. I want to get all this pain. I want to take the pain away from you. I can see how bad you're hurting. And just do this. All done. It's so tempting to throw ideas and solutions, and it just never works. If I could teach one thing, it would be how to sit with someone in that pain and to sit with your own discomfort in that. Um, why do we turn to the church when we are in pain? Why? Why does that typically... Uh, one of the first places, and, and I've seen that again over and over, when people are in crisis, when people are hurting, when people are questioning, when, when people are not sure what to do, actually the church community is one of the first places people turn. It's very, even people who don't have a faith background, they actually go towards, they get drawn towards 
if it's not an organized church, it's some spirituality. It is something in that greater ethereal realm because they're recognizing the corporeal, the stuff that's just made up, the, the, the tangible things in life isn't actually solving the problems. It isn't alleviating the pain, so there must be something they're missing. So they go to the spiritual. So why in the world do we go towards the church when, when we are hurting? What are we wanting and needing? What are our expectations that we're hoping to have? Bigger question, has the church promised something that the world hasn't or can't offer? What do you think that is? What do you think the church can offer or what people are looking for that maybe the world can't offer? Any ideas? Purpose and meaning. Okay, what else? Yeah, kind of some guy named Jesus. And what would Jesus do for you that the world doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. How does purpose and meaning? Put more words to purpose and meaning for me. Yeah. Yeah. And the church is supposed to have that answer. Why God? Someone could teach a class on that. Yeah. Strength in numbers. What do you mean by that? Interesting. Yeah. It's the um, it's the early experiment that they assumed that uh, little monkeys. Would they set up this little experiment of, of um, wire mesh, one has covered with a towel and one has a bottle, and baby monkeys, they would zap them with electricity and then see which ones they ran to for comfort. And the premise was they're going to run to the, to the, uh, the thing that, that provides sustenance, that provides um, food, and across the board, what happens? They don't care about food. They care about comfort. They care about human touch. They care about something that offers Again, that, that, that comfort. And so people offer that to each other. Absolutely. Anything else that you think the church offers that the world can't? Because then the next question is, how well does the church do? Um, I put it for looking for acceptance and hope. Acceptance is that comfort and that hope would be the, the meaning piece as well. Why is this happening? And I need to have hope that it's not going to stay this way. Because if it's staying this way, and this is the only thing I have look, to look forward to, I'm stuck like Chuck. And that's just no good at all. So back to the question, how well does the church offer acceptance and hope? Rhetorical question, by the way. I believe that the church probably hurts the most when either one of those are compromised in some way when there isn't either acceptance or there isn't primary answers that are giving some sort of guidance in some way. So how the church can actually cause hurt. Kind of wanted to examine some of this a little bit more specifically, and then we're going to jump to the other side of the equation. So what's really, 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 really important, really, is when we talk about church, it's easy to make 
some broad assumptions and kind of generalize it. But the reality is church equals human beings. We're not talking about an organization. We're not talking about a building. We're not talking about a community group. We're talking about individual human beings. I don't ever relate to the church. I relate to either believers or pastors. Those tend to be the two primary people who represent the church or make up the church or lead the church or shepherd the church. So we actually have to change our vocabulary a little bit and almost remove the word church and talk about how, how do we handle human beings who are supposed to offer us acceptance and hope but either don't do that well or drop the ball or complicate that in some way. So the church itself is actually made up of you and me, the, the squishy parts inside. It's just those human beings that we are. Um, the church can hurt in a couple ways. Um, they have a too strong of emphasis on external behaviors. That would be, um, you could put some words like fundamentalism in there. Um, it's the story I heard. I'm trying to think actually where I learned this story from. I might be stealing someone else's story. If I am, sorry. Um, but it's the father who's um, the fundamental believer the son comes home with long hair in the 60s, early 70s, and the father says, you're not coming in this house until your hair is off your ears. And the son says, oh yeah, watch this, dad, and turns around and walks away and never speaks to his father again over hair length because there's an external emphasis on behavior. And when that, when that becomes too strong, what tends to happen um, is is um, you get this statement which says you're not doing something spiritual enough and that's why you're still not happy. If you just do something external, read your Bible and pray more, attend church more often, sing the right hymns, wear the right clothes, drink the right things, say the right words, hang out with the right people, then, then you'll be happy, spiritually happy. So that's one way. Not every church is that, okay? But that is some people's experiences in here. They've grown up in a very strict, very behavior-based faith system. And when that happens, you end up um, living through some of the pain. Tells me that my pain is my fault. Hearing that a lot, which is if I don't do the right things, then the pain I'm sitting in, the struggle I'm hurting, is God's punishment of me. It's the consequences that I'm experiencing. And you're hurting, so you should just stop it. Stop it! Lack of empathy, lack of acceptance. Now, that doesn't always mean that, doesn't always mean that that's not true. There are some people who are actually experiencing legitimate consequences to their sinful behavior, but as other fellow believers, we can either go, that's a bummer, you're stuck, or we can go, man, I'm so sorry, and I crave, I ache, I desire for you to change because I don't want you to hurt anymore. What can I do to help you stop your behavior? How can I come alongside you? How can I be patient with you? What do you need? I want to do anything I can to facilitate your growth and change and improvement. It also creates potential shame or even massive shame. I am bad. Shame is I am bad versus what I do is bad. That's the difference between shame and guilt for those who are kind of confused on the two. Guilt is I've done something wrong. I take full responsibility for it and I feel bad. 
I should feel bad because I've done something wrong, but I still have value, inherent value as a human being. Shame is, I did something wrong because I am wrong. That's just pretty much the only consequence my life can be. I'm screwed up, so I'm just going to keep doing bad things. When shame gets a hold of you, um, it takes a lot of concerted effort and work to kind of break yourself free of those messages. And again, faith systems that are, that are strongly based on external behaviors reinforce this kind of stuff. Um, oops, don't play yet. Come on back. Lack of appropriate empathetic responses. I kind of touched on that already. But does anyone... How do I want to phrase the question? I want to be careful how I phrase it here. Um, what does it feel like when you go towards someone, not necessarily a pastoral staff or a believer, but just a friend, and you're looking for an empathetic response? Not a solution, not problem solving, but just an empathetic response, and they don't give it to you. What happens to the weight and the pain you're sitting in? Anyone? Have that experience? Can put any words behind that? Yes, ma'am. It, inc- it actually is like I've, I've tried my one time and it didn't work out, so I have to isolate again. I have to be on my own with that. And how hard is it to break that message now, the secondary message? You're already feeling bad about the first thing, and now you've got to break through the second thing. Pretty hard. Pretty difficult. What else does that feel like when you're hoping someone just hear and listen and they don't do it. Rejection as yeah not heard not understood that's probably one second I'll get to you Uh, that's probably one of the greatest greatest desires I hear both in my office and in people in general, I want to be understood. If you can just understand me. Not even agree with me. If you can understand me. That is going to help me a lot. I wish that would be the parenting class I would teach. I think if parents can offer that to children, your needs are legitimate and appropriate and make sense then they grow up to be amazing human beings who can offer that to their kids and their kids and other people and the church and the community and it's rainbows and butterflies after that. So you were going to say? Yeah, that hunkering down, that closed-off posture. Whether that's out of anger or frustration or self-protection, um, because you opened up and you don't want to get hurt again. That is, that's just profound. Um, I wanted to watch, there's one other, there's two other themes of kind of how the church can hurt, and this is probably one of my favorite clips um, that talk about a couple things. This is from the West Wing, my favorite TV show, hands down. I've watched it many, many, many times. Anyone's not seen The West Wing? I've... Holy cow. 
I'm either getting old or my references I need to update or something. This is amazing. So, 30 seconds of backstory. Um, this is going to be Josh Lyman. He is the deputy chief of staff in the White House. Um, in the previous episodes, in the season ender, um, the president had an assassination attempt. Um, and Josh Lyman was one of the people who was um, shot, almost died. He's now been experiencing issues in the White House, and they've called in a therapist to help kind of figure out what's going on with him. This is um, the conversation between him and the therapist as they work through some things. So I'm showing this clip for a couple things. It's probably one of my favorite, favorite, favorite explanations of what PTSD looks like. So anyone who's been in that realm or area or things like this, this is what it looks like. It's just a superb example. That's just a bonus piece here. Um, but I want you to watch what Leo McGarry, the guy at the end of the clip um, who talks with Josh, um, what he says to Josh and, and what that looks like, because this is on the theme of empathetic responses. It's about an eight-minute clip, so get comfortable. It's, it's just great. Okay? Everyone needs to go home and watch the West Wing. I'm sorry? You said you diagnosed me after five minutes. What was the diagnosis? You have post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, that doesn't really sound like something they let you have if you work for the president. So, can we have it be something else? Seriously, I think, I, I, I think you might be wrong about that. I, I'm, I'm not trying to be difficult. I don't think you are. I know that I'm, I'm giving you cocky answers. I Listen, should be, you know, you want me to talk about my feelings? No, I don't, Josh. The last thing I want you to do is talk about your feelings. I think if you heard a tape recording of this day, you wouldn't hear the word feelings. What we need to get you to do is be able to remember the shooting without reliving it. And you have been reliving it. Right? It happened during the Christmas party. I'm not trying to give you cocky answers. I'm I am the guy you tell, Josh. It happened at the Christmas party. The box suite in G major. Please join me in welcoming Yo-Yo Ma. Josh. I was fine. Josh. It was... The Bach, G Major. That's a nice piece. It is. Did he play it well? Yo-Yo Ma. I've never heard him in person. That's really... He's really quite something. I was just sitting there. 
I don't know. What, in the fourth grade? I don't know how it started. You tasted something bitter in your mouth. It was the adrenaline. The bitter taste was the adrenaline. What happened then? I couldn't make it stop. What happened when you went home that night? Honestly, nothing. Okay. I sat down Can on the you couch. Honestly, tell me. I, I, that I, I when that pilot pushed the magazine aside as a coast. Can you honestly tell me that you didn't wonder if you were suicidal too? I, I didn't wonder that. You're lying. I didn't wonder that. Everything that the two of you had in common. We had nothing in you common. You knew you had the same birthday. Who gives a damn if we had the same well, birthday? You knew something else. Stanley. You knew he had been shot down once, that his plane had caught on fire, that he had ejected, and that there were some injuries. Stanley, I made myself a drink. I pushed aside a magazine. Josh. A coast Josh. How did you cut your hand? Okay, then. Okay, then? That's that. I'm cured? Yeah, Josh. You're cured. No problem. Stanley. I'm gonna recommend a therapist you'll like. I like you. You're too easy a case for me. I broke a window. Yeah, stop doing that. I wanna commend you on not hurting anybody else and not hurting yourself too badly, but nevertheless, stop doing that. And that'll do the trick? Yep. I, I, I'm getting shortchanged here. Merry Christmas, Josh. We're done. I'll call your office after the holidays and give you a number. It was nice meeting you. Hang on. What, what happens if tomorrow some pilot with my birthday decides to kill himself? No, that wasn't what started it. What started it? 
You were already cooking for a few hours before the pilot. I was? Usually with a gunshot victim, it's um, a car backfiring or a twig snapping, but that's not what it was with you. What was it? Katha? The music. The brass quintet. Why would the music have started? Well, I know it's going to sound like I'm telling you that two plus two equals a bushel of potatoes, but at this moment, in your head, music is the same thing as... As sirens. Yeah. So that's going to be my reaction every time I hear music? No. Why not? Because we get better. All the same, I, I need some more therapy. Oh, you're going to get some. I mean now. Merry Christmas, Josh. You can order pizza. <laughs> Have a good night. Stanley, I haven't told you my dreams yet. Back some over to me. Merry Christmas. How'd it go? Did you wait around for me? How'd it go? He thinks I may have an eating disorder. Josh. And uh, fear of rectangles. That's not weird, is it? I didn't cut my hand on a class. I broke a window in my apartment. This guy's walking down the street when he falls in the hole. The walls are so steep he can't get out. A doctor passes by and the guy shouts up, hey, you can yell me out. The doctor writes a prescription, throws it down in the hole and moves on. Then a priest comes along and the guy shouts up, father, I'm down in this hole, can you help me out? The priest writes out a prayer, throws it down in the hole and moves on. Then a friend walks by. Hey, Joe, it's me, can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. Our guy says, are you stupid? Now we're both down here. The friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. Long as I got a job, you got a job, you understand? You wrapped that yourself, right? The bandage? Yeah. yeah. Donna's gonna take you to the emergency room. She knows. She was the one who guessed. I don't need the emergency room. Come on, it could be infected. You could have a thing. A thing. How the hell do I know? Leo. Let's go. See you later. What do you think of Leo McGarry's response there at the end? Oh, one at a time, I heard this one first. Say it again real loud. He's been in the hole, been in the hole before. Anyone, again, who's seen West Wing know why? Because Leo's a recovering alcoholic and um, prescription drug, drug guy. He's done his time. He knows what messiness looks like. 
And what was Josh's primary feeling or fear about his emotions and his experiences throughout the several weeks? What was he afraid was going to happen? He's going to lose his job. And so what did Leo say at the end here? As long as I got a job, you got a job. It's safe to be messy here. Even working in the White House for the president, you don't have to be perfect. One of the things that we don't, we struggle with accepting is people don't come to us because of our perfection. They never, ever, ever come to us because of our perfection. They come to us because we let our struggles and our, and our mistakes be seen and how we have moved through that. In fact, most of the time, if you look too perfect, people are going, man, either that guy's not actually being very honest with himself and there's something waiting for the other shoe to drop, or it's like, man, I'm going to look really bad next to this guy, so I'm going to distance myself as much as possible so I don't look, I don't look worse off because this guy's going to make me look bad. It's our brokenness which provides comfort and peace. If people knew your brokenness, what if, what if your brokenness actually made it possible for someone else to heal and grow and wrestle through their questions? Would you be willing to let that be seen? Josh was hiding it. Josh was trying to fight as much as he could. Once it gets seen, again, Donna there at the end, I'll give away the whole season here, um, or the whole seven seasons. Uh, later on, Donna um, is in the Middle East, and her convoy that she's traveling with gets um, attacked, and she ends up in the hospital, just like all good TV shows. Someone's got to be some sort of medical drama somewhere. And Josh is able to now go, I get it. I understand PTSD, and I know that well. And they actually bring back the same therapist and all those kinds of things. And, and he's able to walk through that because he understands it on a much deeper level. He gets to be Leo to, to her. Does that make sense? He's in the hole. He jumps in the hole with her. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's one of the things I like the mo most. There's one other way, though, bringing this back to the theme of how does the church hurt us sometimes. Um, there's actually sometimes a lack of specialized knowledge. This is more of an uh, a, a injury caused by um, uh, not, not intent, but by lack of skill. Um, a lot of pastors have never, ever, ever been trained around trauma recovery. They don't have any idea how to handle addiction stuff. They don't understand domestic abuse, or they don't understand molestation. They just, they don't have the, the training and specialized knowledge. They don't understand financial crisis. They don't understand lots of specialized things. And so when you go to them, or even other believers, a lot of other believers you just go to and say, I need some help with this. And they, they in their lack of knowledge, they go, just get over it. Just stop feeling that way and you'll feel better. Man, how often does that work? And so we have to be a little gracious towards people who, even though they have their best intent, they still might actually cause harm or injury because they just aren't trained in what that is. Or the other one is this, a pure lack of time. There is, what, 70 people in the room tonight and one of me. If all of you wanted to come talk to me afterwards, 
I'm just not going to have the time to talk with you and to spend the, the actual genuine, um, uh, legitimate amount of time to hear your story, to understand, to, to connect with you just because there's 69 other people behind you who all want the same from me. I literally burn out. And so um, pastors or other believers who tend to get inundated with that, they simply just, for efficiency's sake, they, they offer things or do things which might be, again, hurtful, uncomfortable, wound-causing in some way. It's just the kind of the circumstances in the, the world we live in. Um, questions at all or other things you would add into kind of how the church sometimes hurts? I try to cover, again, just kind of broad categories at the moment. Yes, ma'am. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. What she said, for those who couldn't hear, is it's oftentimes more acceptable to have struggled through something as long as you're on the outside of it. Struggling in the moment isn't always as acceptable, especially if you have some sort of leadership role within that context. That's absolutely true. That's very, very true. Man. One other one that I've heard recently is for those who have grown up in families where uh, a family member was uh, part of a, a um, pastoral staff or leadership staff in some way, and the expectation of looking a certain way or behaving in a certain way puts all sorts of pressure on, on families and kids and wives and, and what your family's supposed to look like. In fact, I've heard that. I've had several clients who've grown up with ministry parents and night and day kinds of conversations because what people saw up front and what was actually happening behind the scenes, um, again, was just painful. That's kind of those unique stories. So that absolutely can be painful. Now, in relationship, whenever there's a break in relationship, we actually have to um, look at both sides. If there's a conflict between two people who are in relationship, it's never, ever just one person's fault. There's always some component the other person contributes. So if the church has been hurtful, we can look at your responses or why you might have received responses or, again, some of the things that play into that. Um, and so we have to examine, oops, what is your role in the relationship with the church or the person that has actually caused the hurt in some way? So the first role I actually call spectator. There are some people, uh, I'll actually put myself into that category for, for an example here. Uh, I actually really enjoy Timothy Keller. Familiar with Timothy Keller at all? He's a pastor out of New York, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Really enjoy his teaching, really enjoy the things that he says. Do I interact with his church? Do I attend his church? Do I have relationship with anyone in that church, any pastors? I'm in Portland, of course I don't. I don't have any connection to that. I'm a spectator. But if I were to hear or, or, or have an opinion about one of the things that is happening in Redeemer Presbyterian Church, I have the right, uh, yeah, I'll use that word, I have the right to, to voice my opinion. How productive is that going to be as a spectator? Probably not a whole lot. Then you actually have what I call a user. 
A user is someone who might be involved in a, in a church community, but they tend to be consumers only. They, they attend so that they can get something out of it. They tend to um, selectively pick pieces that are going to reinforce what they already believe or, or things that they, that they want to work on. And um, they don't actually give back. They don't, they don't in, interact. They don't um, have an investment into the church. Uh, in some way, which puts us into the third category, which is the investor. That is someone who within a church community is saying, I will take some responsibility for the health of this community. I will interact. I will take on responsibility. I will take on additional knowledge or training so that I can contribute to this. Now, what happens is if you, if you don't understand what role you have within the community, within the church, um, each role gives you rights and your voice will be heard and considered differently depending upon the role that you are carrying. So again, if a spectator has some sort of comment and I start posting online about how, Tim, how terrible Timothy Keller is or decisions they made in their church over there, um, should the pastoral staff call me up and say, Paul, we see what you're writing. Come talk to us and tell us what's going on. Have we earned the right for that kind of relationship reestablishment? Have I earned that right yet? What do you think? Gut feeling. Probably not. Would that be fair to say? Be nice. Someone, someone calls me up from New York. We, we were reading your blog, Paul, and we are concerned about what you wrote. Can you, you want to come talk to us? We'll fly you out here to New York. That'd be nice. Probably not. Um, if, I'm, if you're a, a consumer and you have, again, you've been hurt by the church and you have some concerns that you want to voice, what kind of... Um, what kind of reception should you receive from the church staff, other believers in general, when you have a concern? What's an appropriate response? Open-mindedness and empathy. Okay. Anything else? Judgmental? Non-judgmental. I say judgmental. That's going to be interesting. Anything else? Yes. An invitation for what? To become a consumer and, and um, elicit change. Like right there. Your role will determine your level of impact to actually elicit change within that relationship. So if you're an investor, if you actually are putting energy in and taking ownership of the church, ownership in the relationship, what would you expect a, a, a good response to be when you have hurt or questions or confusion that, that either, again, believers or the staff, because we're talking about people here, not just a church, but people are causing in you. What would be an anticipated response you'd hope to receive if you are an investor? You've given your heart to the church. To be heard? Okay. What else? Ooh, there's a word. Action. What do you mean by that? Real loud. Um, Stand up and turn around since you're in the front row and no one can hear you. Uh, you would expect change on what you have an opinion about or against. Why, why does the investor get action when a spectator doesn't? how he interacts. Do you think that he's earned, ooh, there's a word. Do you think he's earned action? 
gets sticky, doesn't it? What do you think? Oh, I heard someone say no. Is that actually, did someone want to say it louder and commit to it? Okay, maybe not. He feels what? He feels that he earned some action. That he should get it. Okay. We'll come to you in just a second. Yep. Okay. Uh huh. Yep. Yep. And get some action. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. Yes. So now you've just entered into a wonderful, wonderful gray area. Thank you very much because it's both circumstantial, it's based upon values, and it's based upon um, the nature of relationship. Because even between my wife and I, should I do everything that my wife asks me to do? Ooh. <laughs> How's that for a loaded question? <laughs> was, yeah, there's really only one answer. Of course, Paul. You're smart. Should I do that? Is that healthy? Yeah. There's things that she might ask me to do which would be inappropriate, and I have to actually still live within my own integrity. And that's not in a postmodern, my own integrity, but I, I do what is right because it's the right thing to do re regardless of what she asks or expects, and I have to be willing to disappoint her in some way. So now we get into what are those areas and how do we handle that and how do those roles play out, and that's exactly, exactly why I've asked a couple pastors to come sit up here so that you can ask those questions and how would they handle that because... I want to actually have a practical conversation for those who actually might even attend here. I don't know if, I'm assuming that not everyone attends here. You might have just come for the series. You just come for refuge. But I want to, I want to open up a dialogue so that you can hear from a pastor's perspective, not just a counselor or a guest speaker who's coming to your congregation here, what they do with some of these hard questions and how they navigate through some of this. So Bill and Ben, I'll let you come on up here while I grab one more question from the back here. Real loud. I'm sorry? Doesn't it vary between how the church is governed and set up? Oh, yeah. So we have, we have all sorts of issues that play into this as well. Yeah. Real fast, guy. I have a question yep. about that last statement. I think that it's the pastor doesn't necessarily have the right to speak. I think it's the right to be a part of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. This is this is some sticky spaces here. This is some. Can you can you guys feel the 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 change in the energy in the room when we start to dance around some of this? Only when we got up here. <laughs> <laughs> Only when they get up here. Um, Again, because we're not talking about the church in general, we're talking about human beings, believers and pastors, believers and leaders. Um, 
I actually wanted you to hear from both Ben and Bill some of their own personal stories around, even though they might be pastoral staff, they are not exempt from hurts or struggles with the church. Would that be a fair thing to say? Perfect. I'm going to let you hear some of their questions or some of their stories. I gave my story here. What would, who wants to start? What would the story be? Um, uh, so my name is Ben. I'm a pastor here at Amago Day. I've been pastor here for, I've been on staff here for about eight years, pastor here for about five and a half. Um, and I'll try to do a quick intro because so that we can keep time. But yeah, my, my experience, um, I think as Paul started in the beginning, I'm just a person. <laughs> I'm not, you know, my pastor is my role. But I am a person, so I grew up in the church and had a lot of wounding in the context of what we would call the church. Uh, when I say we call the church, I think um, Rick, many of you know Rick. He's our, one of the founding pastor of Amagada. He threatens to write a book called um, How I've Been Hurt by the Church. <laughs> um, because people, that's the first thing that usually someone will say to a pastor is like, I would like to talk to you, but I've been really hurt by the church. Um, but the reality is like, as pastors, we also get hurt by the church because <laughs> um, we are the church and we tend to hurt each other. Um, but yeah, so I grew up in a, in a church, um, in a ministry family. Um, and uh, I would, um, I'm not going to go into my whole story now, but I would love to tell you my story if you ever want to hear more. But it would just, it could take a long time to go into all the details. But yeah, I had some spiritual abuse, um, what I would call spiritual abuse um, in the process of trying to get involved in ministry. Um, been hurt in churches um, by people and by pastors um, and had to navigate and work through a lot of that in my own personal life. Um, and then I became a pastor, um, which was the last thing in the world that I ever wanted to be um, and still feel really um, honored that I get to be a pastor, but it's, it scares me almost daily sometimes. Um, and some of that comes from at least my experience as being a pastor then you, there is a part of that that, um, that is difficult because people do put a lot of expectations on you and some of those expectations I would never put on myself or on somebody else, but they come with those. And so I've had experiences with people even here where I, um, an example is I, I stand at the doors on Sunday mornings and I just love to offer prayer for people. And I've had people come down and uh, one situation, a gentleman came down and then he spent about 15 minutes cussing me out um, and just yelling at me. And, uh, and I remember trying to, you know, I feel like trying to be empathetic and at least listening and trying to understand where he was coming from. But it did get to a point where I was, I had to, I was finding myself getting angry. <laughs> um, and even in, in the, at the end of the, I was feeling really hurt um, by some of the things that he was saying. And I said to him, I said, I, can I just stop you, bro, for a second? And just some of the things that you're saying are really hurt, like they're, really offensive and it's actually a kind of abusive and he said well yeah you can take it you're a pastor so you're going to sit here and listen to me yeah. and I was like wow like um, that's your perspective on my role is that I get to be a whipping post for you because I represent sort of God and you're really just angry at God but I'm going to be the the person you get to so I'm a human and that I mean I I'm a person I get hurt by things like that so my experience has been I've been hurt in the church and by the church, as people would call it, but I also have been hurt in the church by the church as a pastor in the same context. Um, so I'm still trying to figure this out. Like it's, um, 
I think I, and I, I probably have hurt people um, as a pastor, um, even sometimes unintentionally, um, but because I'm human <laughs> and I'm just trying to be in relationship. But my, I hurt my wife sometimes, and I love my wife more than anything, but I'm in relationship with her and I hurt her still. Um, and we're trying to work through that together. And so I feel like that's my, I get to be that in the church. I don't know. I'm kind of, no, I'd love to tell more of my story if you'd love to sit down yeah. and talk about it, but I could go on for longer than I need to. I have twice the story Ben does because I'm twice as old. Uh, but um, uh, I think the two areas kind of relate to our discussion tonight are that um, uh, <clears throat> I was in a church that was very abusive in its power and um, was part of that pastoral staff. And uh, actually, one of the people on my staff, I, I was a campus pastor of one of the campuses of, of the church, and uh, one of the pastors on the staff who'd been a good friend of mine even before we went to that church um, was kind of in a uh, counseling role as a pastor on our staff. And... Um, he was very abusive to the people he counseled. And I had to fire him. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was fire one of my good, good, good friends. And um, that was six or seven years ago. And still, every time we see each other, he goes, you fired me, you know? And, and at first, it made me just feel terrible. And then I had to kind of come to the place, he's not going to let this go, and to him it's something that he's holding against me, and he doesn't even want to work it out, he just wants me to hurt like he hurt when he got fired, and finally, a couple years ago, I had to say, I'd do it again. I know that sounds ugly and brutal, and, and maybe it's self-defensive, but I was just trying to let him know that it wasn't an impulse and it was the right thing to do, and that uh, he wasn't acting as a pastor anymore. He was acting as somebody not accountable to anybody and an unquestionable authority, and when anybody questioned him, that's when he got abusive with them. Um, then uh, the other part is that I was a pastor uh, of a church that I planted while my wife contracted cancer, and struggled with that for, um, uh, well, six years, and then we turned the church over to uh, uh, another church, and um, she died the next year. But um, I think for me, the hardest part was that there was this role of being a pastor that everybody expected me to do with no consideration of you know, when, when my wife was healthy, I could run and gun in any ministry. And I mean, like I directed a university ministry that was the largest university ministry on a state campus in the United States. And I could run and gun with the best of them. And I went home and my wife knew how to make home an oasis. And all of a sudden, home was another ministry front, you know? And there was no um, resource in her, and it became more and more a demand on me to take care of her. And I had a church that just looked at me like, you're slacking here at work. And that was very hurtful. Yeah. Yeah. 
What do you hear about the expectations placed on these human beings? They happen, they happen to have a job in a church, but they're still human beings. What do you hear about the expectations placed on them? And what does it stir inside of you as you're hearing the, the treatment they've received? Double standard in what way? Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. They represent Jesus. They're not actually Jesus. Doesn't the whole body represent Christ, which is that double standard she's just talking about? How come we, how come we have this expectation of my needs are going to trump their needs? Okay, we got lots of hands here. This is good. I'm going to go here first, if that's okay. Yes, please. Yes. What would you say to that? Uh, pastors who, whose either personality even elicits kind of this imbalance of power, um, questions around what does a healthy church, what does a healthy pastor look like, what does an unhealthy pastor look like, how do you guys play that out? And then I'll let who wants to go first. We'll come back to yours in a second. I think most people go into ministry because they want to be needed, you know, and um, unfortunately that's already a kind of a codependent uh, way to enter in. And then you're at this place where somebody needs an authoritative answer and you feel like you've got an answer. So you just step into that, sometimes unknowingly. But then I think, you know, when I watched my friend, I think he became addicted to it, mm -hmm. you know. And so that was just his default key was, I will step in and if you question me, you're in sin. And, and um, you know, when you start disagreeing with me and I, I define that as sin, then I've got a problem, you know? And I mean, you, you've said that the parallel goes in all kinds of ways. I mean, that's an easy thing for parents to think exactly. is as soon as their kid questions exactly. them, they've sinned, you know? Yep, <laughs> yep. And the parallels are, are very profound because what happens, again, within the church here happens in every relationship between a husband and a wife. If my wife disagrees with me, I have a right to berate her, tear her down, challenge her. That's unhealthy. It doesn't matter the role. That, that's relational toxicity. Does that make sense? 
and it's, it, it's difficult to even get into a relationship that brings any sort of resolution or productive conversation when one person's perspective is so skewed. And I, I think I can say this, guys, pastors sometimes do that. And you, it's our responsibility as believers, as, as followers, as people who are being shepherded, shepherded to go into that with our, with our brains engaged. Would that be fair enough? Is that appropriate to say and that's all right? So we actually are allowed to be discerning as well. So what would, what would be a good way for someone who has a concern about what a pastor is doing to either approach that pastor or approach someone in the church? How would you guys like to be approached when someone either has a problem with you or has a problem with the church? Um, Do you want them to approach you? Let me yeah. even ask that question. Yeah. I, I, um, I had someone this afternoon in my office um, have a, I had an amazing conversation with somebody who just said, set up an appointment and she came in and talked with me about some of her frustrations um, with the church. Um, and, um, and, I, and I would say this because I've been a part of this community for a long time. I'm not going to point anybody out, but there's many of you who have loved me by coming and talking to me about the areas that I've hurt you. That is one of the greatest gifts that I've received from this community as a pastor who's trying to figure out how to be a pastor. Um, and, and that to me, like, if you, because I'm, we're, we talk about refuge, about walking through and journeying through life together. Um, there's nothing that communicates love to me more than when someone's willing to risk coming into a pastor's office and risk sharing with me how they feel disappointed by me or frustrated by something that happened, or whether it's me or the church, but especially if it's personal. Um, it's probably one of the greatest gifts um, that I feel like I'm given. If it's done without cussing me out yeah. behind the doors. I don't appreciate that as much. But some of you have really clearly even come to me and said, I, we met one time, um, and I walked away feeling really hurt by our conversation, and I've had a hard time talking to you ever since. Man, I love that to me is a, a willingness to say, I'm going to try to risk again with you. And I'm going to risk having that conversation. And that's one of the greatest gifts that I've been given because then we get to engage in a relationship and I get to apologize. One of the hardest things as a pastor when someone gets hurt and then they never give me an opportunity to apologize. Yeah. They either go, I'm out of here and they leave. Um, or they tell somebody else that they are bitter at me or angry and I never even get to engage with them about that. I know that I, I hurt people. And I don't mean that in a sense of like that it's intended but it just happens sometimes. My, one of my greatest anxiety, I struggle with anxiety. I've talked about that a lot at Refuge. And one of the things that happens to me when I struggle with anxiety is I, my mind just like, for those others that struggle with anxiety, your mind freezes and you just can't remember things very well. One of my greatest panic moments often at church is when I'm standing at that door and somebody's walking towards me and we've had 15 conversations and I know you really well and I go, what's their name? Hmm. Oh no. <laughs> and I have a panic attack, and then I definitely am not going to remember their name. Um, and so we sit back there, and I'm praying, God, please give me their name. <laughs> um, and I'm sure there's people in this room that have been like, oh, yeah, I remember one time you asked me what my name was. Um, and that's just my insecurity in some of those things that I struggle with. But there's been people that have been angry with me because I didn't remember their name. Um, and I, I don't want to have to give them my whole history of anxiety and my memory, but... I love it when we get to engage in community together and yeah. when, when someone's willing to approach me and just say, hey, I want to give you the benefit of the doubt in the same way I think you'd give me the benefit of the doubt, but I got to tell you, this, this hurt me. I, that is a gift, and I, so that's yeah. how I would appreciate it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think the most painful thing is when somebody thinks that they got hurt by a pastor and the pastor doesn't care. You know, um, or that a pastor did that on purpose because you should be spanked, you know? Um, I think um, when somebody approaches me and says that they, I've hurt them or that I've said something that's offended them or done something that's offended them, I, I want to know that. Um, and hopefully the, the person that's approaching me is saying that because they want the relationship righted rather than they just want to be in the right, you know? And um, yeah. I'm just like everybody else. There are times when I'm in the space that I can receive that. Yeah. And there are times when yeah. it pushes my button and I want to push back, you know? And um, uh, hopefully I don't push back, yeah. but even inside that could be going on, you know? Yeah. And you just then you're playing the role of pastor and have some internal things that don't square up. And um, then you go home beating yourself up as a pastor for really being a bad person, you know? Um, when, when Sue and I go out, sometimes with couples, we'll come home and she'll say, they are way better Christians than we are, aren't they? And I go, yes, they are. <laughs> One of the things that just encourages my heart is I actually have um, some clients that have come into my office and said the church I've been hurt by pastors before and and it's still kind of active it's still kind of triggering and I've asked my clients um, to actually go talk to one of these two guys sitting up here right now. And what's really encouraging is sometimes my client will come back. Okay, this is uh, multiple clients. Obviously, I'm not saying names to protect confidentiality. But I've had one of them come back and say that was the most redemptive thing I've ever done. It, it changed my entire perspective of pastors because one of these guys was, was empathetic and listening and, and was able to, again, r make the relationship right rather than, than be in the right. And that has been transformative. And then I've had another client come back and say, I went and talked to them, and it still feels like they didn't hear me. One of these guys. I'm not going to tell you who. <laughs> and so as a client, as a client, I get to say, are you willing to try again? Are you willing to go back again? And just like you said, I've tried once and that's it, and, and I can't go back again. Stepping over that, that fear of, I'm going to keep going back and trying to write it, I can say that, again, in this one experience, they actually went back and had more conversation and was able to move back into the, that was worth the struggle, that was worth the wrestle, because it's relationship with human beings. It's not relationship with demigods or anything else like that. They're human beings who have good days and bad days. Believers here, okay? Good days and bad days. Sometimes the guy you sit next to in the pew has body odor, and it's like, okay, we got to move over. How do we do that subtly? Oh, good, we got a hymn coming up. We can just step out and move to another part of the sanctuary. Believers offend in all sorts of ways. Are we willing to still engage? 
and resist the temptation to bail out and self-protect and become critical and hold the double standard like we had pointed out. Yes, please, real loud. Her question is, is it is okay for pastors to be held to a higher standard, or are we all held to the same standard? I'm glad they're asking you. Ben says that's a good question. You must have a good answer. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I um, think that in James, it talks about teachers being held to a higher accountability, but I don't know that that higher accountability is to the people he's teaching. You know, I think God holds us to a standard that he'll assess us by. But I think as far as one another, um, we should hold each other to a ideal that I, I believe that the Holy Spirit's at work in your life and you can, you can karaoke Jesus' life on earth. And, and so can I. And when we're, we're not, when we're uh, singing our own song rather than Jesus' song, we should be able to talk to each other about it. Um, but that's the same standard because we're Christ followers. So I think if there's a standard that I'm not uh, living up to or that Ben's not living up to, um, I think it's fair to say that disappoints me as one of the parishioners. Uh, but I think that the, the judgment piece, it comes from God, you know? Yeah, and I, the only thing I'd add to that is I just think being... I think being a pastor is a privilege, not a right. <laughs> so um, just because I have a position of pastor doesn't mean that now I have a right to, I, it's a privilege. And if I abuse the privilege, then I just, I lose my privilege. Uh, I think sometimes um, if pastors don't look at it that way, they kind of, I think some people think oh, I've climbed the ladder and I deserve to be here because I've done my seminary and I've got my, MDiv, and now I got the position, and so now it's my right to be called pastor. I think if they, if that's the ideal behind it, I think you, I think they're missing it. Like it's just a, it's a privilege to get to step in and be a pastor, but it's not my right. I also think it's a risky thing to do because most parishioners, most believers, get to sit out here in some level of anonymity. Their personal lives aren't put on display. They don't put themselves into that place of scrutiny, whereas people who choose to be in leadership stand up there with a target on themselves and they share their stories and their thoughts and their beliefs and they're just more vocal and, and more transparent and more vulnerable. And so what do we do with that vulnerability? Do we, again, cuss them out when we disagree with them in the, in the back corner or do we honor that vulnerability and go, man, you... I still I might disagree with you or I have questions or anything, but I want to honor that vulnerability. How do we how do we do that well? So that's we're still believers, but you guys get to you guys, I do too, get to sit out in the pews with some level of anonymity. It's one of the things that people do on the internet when they don't think people are watching and they can't track you. Holy cow, you go places and do things that you would never do if you actually had to look at another human being and ask those questions or type those things or see those things. Anonymity makes us um, actually detached. There's a really cool research thing on uh, driving. 
I think I talked about this in one of the other things, that if you are driving down and you actually want to merge in, if you just turn your blinker on but never make eye contact with the person in, statistically that person is, you know, less likely to let you in. But if you turn around and you make eye contact that fast, you just you are able to look them eyeball to eyeball, it's no longer this big hunk of steel that's trying to get in your way and slow you down. It's now another human being. And statistically, there's a much, much, much greater chance that they're going to let you in. They've done all sorts of cool studies on this. And it's about eye contact and human connection. And so when you are getting connected, I don't actually know where I was going with that story, but it was something, where was I going with that? Oh, look at this. Now here's, we got the questions going. Anonymity, thank you very much, and the things we do. There you go. Thanks for bringing me back. Um, let's go here. We got... Yeah. Yeah. My hope would be that would be also sustained on some random Sunday in, you know, that's far away from a big, big uh, hyped up experience. How can we cheer on our leaders in a, in a practical way every day? But it's nice to see that appreciation. It's nice to have that. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Perfect. Got it. Right. Yeah. Football, Calvin Ball, Chet, yeah. Busted. I just got spanked for that. Did you see that? Ouch. I appreciate that. But I wanted to bring up the idea of gender okay. for us to think together about Do you want to tackle that in the context of hurt? Or I know that we had talked about, there's several specific issues that we could talk about topically, but we want to stay real focused on what to do in the church hurt. So that's kind of the narrow focus we're staying on. I'll just, um, Perfect. this is what I would, I would say to that briefly. And it's, I would love to talk with you more about that. See, uh, cause I think it's a, that's a really valuable conversation and that Great. right there, she took a big risk right yes. there in saying that. Cause I think that there's a lot of women in churches that have never felt even safe to say what you just said. Um, and I think that it's really important for us to acknowledge the risk in that. Um, because it hasn't always been a safe place to even ask that question. Uh, and I think that that's something where um, 
I guess from my standpoint, I don't want to speak on behalf of the church because I think we are the church. So I think this is something that we need to have conversations about and be able to talk about freely together. Um, and I think that's where when we talk about trying to navigate what is our guide, um, if it becomes, I think we, uh, what I say? Imago Day. this is what I'm learning, and I'm still learning it. I'm trying to figure it out as I go, but it seems like we're trying to do the best that we can to say if we're going to consider God's word like our guide, then let's try to do the best that we can in understanding what that's saying. And I think that sometimes that um, has not been a conversation. That's just been some people in a room that have decided this is what we're going to do. Um, and I feel like um, I've learned a lot by being wrong a lot. Um, and, and honestly, I've, been, I've learned a lot by being wrong a lot and being very vocal about it. And then getting sort of having somebody gently walk with me and go, actually, this is what I think God's word says. And um, my, um, oh man, I'm going off on, my, my mother is a Bible teacher. I'm, I very deeply have, I have a deep respect for women leaders and the ability and what they can bring. Um, and I do think that we miss that a lot. Um, and I think it's really sad. Like, it really makes me sad. Um, and that's not going to answer your question necessarily, but just from, from my connection with you, like, I hear you, and I, man, I would love to talk with you more about that because I feel like um, I don't think that women are represented enough. And I think, I know we at Amago are trying to work on that and talk, have conversation about it. I think it's a conversation that needs to keep happening. Um, but it's probably a bigger conversation than we can answer tonight. Yeah. <laughs> but I would love to chat with you more about that because I think you're right. Um, I don't know. I just wanted to say I'm sorry that you feel that way. And I don't mean sorry that you feel that way because you shouldn't. I'm sorry I've contributed to women feeling that way. And um, part of it is that I haven't seen women and I haven't seen minorities and I've lived in a dominant culture and Eric being here has been very helpful for me to to learn some of that. I, my youngest son is married to uh, a Korean woman and I have a, a six-year-old grandson who sees himself as Korean. He looks very Korean and when I was up at his house a couple weeks ago he said um, I'd really love to be a talk show host. I went, that's great, Gus, you can be a talk show host. And he goes, no, I can't. There are no Korean talk show hosts. And, you know, when you are in that dominant place, like when I'm a guy sitting in the pew and I see predominantly guys up here, I don't feel marginalized. And so I don't think anybody's marginalized. And so it does take voices like yours and the dialogues that we're trying to have as a church to break us out of the myopic view that things are all okay because I don't see any dissimilarity between what we're saying and what we're doing. But the minute I talk to people who feel marginalized, I realize how crazy it is. Yeah, and I, I do think that uh, we need to do the hard work of figuring out what it looks like to work together rather than just tell people, be comfortable in your positions. Yeah. This is the frustrating part of this process because I think the conversation could go on for a lot longer right now. Um, and having two staff members for this congregation who are willing to listen and engage in that is um, 
a wonderful, wonderful opportunity, but if we did that, we'd be home at two in the morning and that's just not gonna work out for babysitters. Would you be willing, gentlemen, if they took the, there's baskets with pen and paper in the back and you could actually write down your specific question and um, they can enter into longer dialogues outside of this series and, and, and other ways so that you know where the questions are and, and you're, you'd be more than willing to, to enter into those conversations. That would be okay? I would say yes with a condition. Great. I like conditions. <laughs> um, and, and boundaries, because I'm learning at Refuge that it's good to have boundaries. How about that? Um, no, I would say yes. One, I'd say we're not, I'm not, a, we're not guest speakers. Um, we're here at Imago, and I'm a part of Refuge, and I don't mean that like because I'm the leader of Refuge. I'm a part of Refuge because I need Refuge. So I'm with this community, so I'm going to be here. So um, it doesn't need to be on a piece of paper. If you want to come up and have a conversation, I would love to talk with you. Nice. Um, that would be the one condition. The other one is that we may not have the answer. Um, and can, you, can I ask that if you just ask a question, would it be okay if we don't have the answer? Because I think that's the other way that sometimes... It can be hard as a pastor as people ask questions and if you don't have the answer, then they get upset with you. Um, we're, I'm not, I definitely am not the Bible answer man. Um, I'm trying to learn and be faithful to understand God's word, but there's a lot of things I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out myself. So can you just um, give us the grace to journey with each other in that? And there may be things that we learned from you that um, we didn't know. So um, be open to being a teacher too because sometimes we need to learn um, from you. So that yeah. would be my only conditions with that. I don't yeah. know. But otherwise, yeah. Just stay there real fast. Um, the thing that I want you to walk away with tonight, if there's one thing, um, when the church hurts you, when the church hurt me, it's still my responsibility to stay in the struggle. It's the churches, again, the pastoral staff or the believers, whoever's representing the church, to stay in the struggle with me. And that doesn't always happen on either side. That's our humanity getting in the way. But the concept of openness and validation on both parts is essential. Because if we as the hurt parties are still shut down and closed off and that's it, you've got your one strike and I'm out of here, no solutions get, get resolved or, or discovered. And if, again, leadership and staff aren't in that position as well, no solutions or resolution happens as well. So are you willing to sit in the uncomfortable, the unknown, the gray, the struggle? Are you willing, if you have a pastoral staff who says, I'm, I'm, I'd like to walk through this with you, but it's not gonna be a fast process, but I'll sit with you as long as it takes. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.